Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 233rd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that still stands, as should we all, with the movement to end racial injustice and defund police services in favor of more effective options. I also like to throw in the pile there, how about uh, we like fair and free elections? It's pretty good yes, when yes do. Uh, governments do not target the mail system to try to prevent people from sending in votes. That's usually useful. Not putting a postmaster general in place that has conflicts of interest with courier services <laughs> and millions invested in shutting down the same arm of government he's supposed to be running that happens to be guaranteed in the Constitution for the United States. You know, that kind of stuff. MDG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MDG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Cliff Daigle. We're at Word of Commander on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. I'm looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. This show, as always, is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on an incredibly awesome Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Cliff, I have to shout out, actually, to our sponsor, Cool Stuff Inc., because they had a really sweet sale on Double Master Singles this weekend. It was 15% off for, I think, a short period of time. I think it was related to Jeff Hoogland's event. And if you have loyalty program rewards with... Uh, cool stuff inc if you're say level nine you might have another 15 percent to stack on top of that so you can snap off some really sweet deals i think i got foil atraxas at about 30 percent off current tcg market or something like that uh, yeah anytime you can stack coupons that's going to be a winner uh, it only takes about 15 20 percent before you're operating on a buy list margin so uh good stuff good stuff always nice when things stack yeah all right, uh, what's on the agenda this week, my friend? This week, we're going to talk about the Magic Online game uh, week in review. We are going to go over what moved in paper this week. Uh, we got also going to talk about what moved online. You and I have some spicy, spicy, spicy picks this week. And then we're going to talk about some of the things outside of Magic that are influencing the Magic economy. It's uh, some stuff you may not have expected, or you know, considering you, maybe you did expect it because... Uh, you know, you tend to have a, a good perspective on that stuff. Fair enough. So let's uh, kick things off with that metagame we can review uh, deep dive. We'll take a look at the August 13th Pioneer Challenge on Magic Online. Not a, a, a ton of big surprises here. We're basically looking at a bunch of decks that are make a lot of sense now that the combo, uh, combo decks have all been knocked out uh, in, in Pioneer. So we got five color Niv Mizzet at the top of the heap. Um, we picked uh, Niv Mizzet Reborn foils a while back uh, on the basis that this deck has just been putting up result after result, top eight after top eight in both Pioneer and Modern for the better part of a year now. And that's in the face of all the brokenness that's go been going on. I, I expect that Niv Mizzet Reborn foils are going to continue to drain uh, and tip upwards. Second and third were both mono green lists that uh, look very much like the ones we were looking at last week. Um, they uh, 
get a lot of their punch out of all the green pips on the board and then using Castle Garenbrig and Nykthos Shrine to Nyx. Um, fourth place, we had an Esper Control list. How many Planeswalkers was that list running? Uh, that one had like uh, four different ones, heavy on the uh, Teferi 3 and only two of Big Teferi. Sure. And what else is in this top eight here? Uh, we've got the black-white um, enchantments. You could also call it... Uh, it's not quite, you know, as good as the... Um, I keep wanting to say kobolds. It's not kobolds. It's um, bogles. Boggles? Bogles? Whichever. Um, but you're playing uh, all the fun protection stuff, Karametra's Blessing to back it up, and you're just loading all the glitters and cartouches and ethereal armors on there. Yeah, the Black-White Oros deck is... You get a lot of the pieces of the puzzle out of Theros Collector Booster Boxes. Because <laughs> those foil commons and uncommons that are needed for that deck all show up in there. So I've got like most of that deck built, even though I don't really care for it, just because the cards are sitting around and they aren't the kind of thing I'm ever going to sell. The super spicy uh, card in there is the uh, two of on Hushbringer, which just like... You're playing uh, Niv-Mizzet Reborn. You better have an answer for that stupid Hushbringer because it's just going to make you sad all day long none of your stuff works yeah i can i can see that pretty easily so then wrapping up the top eight here we have a jund sacrifice deck which looks like it was mostly ported over from standard uh, what kind of upgrades do we have on this one on uh, this one it's heavy on the bolus of citadel um i think it was um uh, canister that was uh, playing it online we'll talk more about it when we get to the magic online top movers but it's just everything with a sacrifice theme. You know, you got your Priest of Forgotten Gods, Mayhem Devils, Gilded Goosts. Uh, you're doing uh, Catacomb Sifter, Blister Pod, Zulaport Cutthroat, and you're just dumping your hand. Uh, and then four of Collected Company for the spice. Yeah, I mean, Collected Company gives you the kind of come from behind, recover after a sweeper um that is really useful in these decks because they are susceptible to being swept if they and they need a way to reload sometimes um i remember playing a deck a version of this deck in standard a few years back when it was more about blister pod and catacomb sifter um a variant on the rally the ancestors yeah rally so oh, what a lucky guess rally pod decks <laughs> Uh, I remember playing uh, a few years back now. But the nice thing about Blister Pod and Catacomb Sifter in those builds, and here as well, was that you're getting two creatures for the price of one. So even if they sweep, they leave creatures behind, and then you can keep doing your thing. And because every time you sacrifice anything, Mayhem Devil deals one to any target, and Priest of Forgotten Gods does a ton of work. <laughs> so much work. So much work. <laughs> Sacrifice two creatures, sure, but you wanted to do that anyway. And then any number of target players lose two life and sack a creature, and you get two black and you draw a card. I mean, that's a lot of value <laughs> for for a single activation. What really fun is the you know Bola Citadel has the second mode, which is you tap, sacrifice ten permanents. Each opponent loses ten life. Sure. So you just like dump on them, and you've got all your Zulaport triggers and your Mayhem Devil triggers, and they're just dead. Yeah, and I, I played. <laughs> it's a, pretty hilarious. I played against a lot of decks with Woe Strider on Magic Arena, and the ability to just sack their board and scry, it can be very nasty. And I actually run a build that's a fair bit different than this, but. Now that I'm looking at it, I should probably be running Bolas of Citadel in my build as well. I'm running like a black-white build uh, that uses all the stuff uh, that drains for one. So yep. 
there's that new vampire that drains for one, um, the one four flyer out of uh, core twenty one, and the bastion of remembrance I think out of Icoria. Yep. And yeah, I mean sacrifice decks are fun. So just a lot of clicking it seems like. But if you can get the hang of it, you know this seems like a sweet sweet thing to do. You just you got to manage your clock and get your clicks in. So Modern Green uh, took up the 8th slot as well, and uh, format's looking pretty stable, not super diverse. I mean, it looks like there's probably 6 or 7, maybe 8 viable archetypes. Um, in the top 16, we had like Sultai Midrange, we had Mono Black Aggro, there are, there's a Blue-Black Control List that's running like Ashiok, Narset, Brazen Borrower, Kalidus, Thing in the Ice, Days Undoing, that's spicy. Four Thoughtseize and 19 Instants with a Shark Typhoon. <laughs> yeah. It's probably the sexiest thing in the top 16, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, man. In- Instance with uh, with a Shark Typhoon, it just feels like cheating. <laughs> so switching over so to good. the Modern Challenge from, looks like, August 16th, uh, we kick things off with a Prowess build. This is four Monastery Swift Spear, four Soul Scar Mage, four Sprite Dragon, and four Stormwing Entity, one of my picks from a little while back, with two Bedlam Reveler, three Light at the Stage, and then 22 Instants, including Mutagenic Growths, Manamorphos, Lava Darts, and other stuff you can cast for free or very close to free, so that you can get maximum triggers. Man, just the thought of going Manamorphos into Stormwing Entity just makes my heart sing. Yeah. This is two dragons claw on the sideboard. That is a focused sideboard card. I love it. it this deck is tuned. <laughs> it's setting a clock, and you need to be ready because they'll kill you on turn three or four. I also love the uh, Kozilek's Return, which is just a strictly better uh, flame sweep because this will kill all your annoying ass uh, protection creatures. This will kill your Oriok champions and whatnot. Yeah, it's de- devoid has no color, so no color. It's not red damage. Second place, we have a Death Shadow build. This is a pretty classical uh, uh, Grixis version, uh, which was, I think, the first to appear on the scene before the Jund one took over for the most part. And they dip into the blue because they want Snapcaster Mages and Stubborn Denials to protect uh, their big creatures, Gurmag Anglers uh, and Death Shadows. And then they've got most of the other the usual components, uh, Mishra's Bobble, Teamer Battle Rage. I guess the other blue card is Thought Scours uh, to fill up the graveyard. Third place, we've got a Sultai uh, control list, 22 instants, all the usual kill and counter suspects. Three Snapback Caster Mages, four Tarmogoyfs, four Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath, and three Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yeah, just uh, any deck that's playing like Archmage's Charm into Cryptic Command into Force and Negation, that's that's heavy duty, man. You don't, they are not messing around here. Fourth place was a Teamer Wilderness Reclamation list. And actually a Wilderness Reclamation deck won another uh, modern event, I think this afternoon. It might not be up on the rankings yet. But Wilderness Reclamation doing a lot of work all the way into modern. And the foils have taken off as a result, as we're going to see in our top movers. One of my picks from a ways back, um, I was just it was predicated largely on pioneer uh, potential as opposed to modern. But card card does turns out it's real good to get your mana twice in a turn cycle. 
Yeah, you think it might be good? Um, I love the Magmatic Sinkhole in here. Like, this is the only Delve card, so it's a lot of times just be one red, deal five to any creature or Planeswalker. Ah. Uh, that'll kill almost anything that pops up into play without having to go into uh, black or add a, a yet another color. That's useful. Fifth place in the Modern Challenge was a uh, pretty straightforward-looking humans list that includes four Meddling Mage. It's pretty interesting that Meddling Mage is like the the sad face moment when you're opening VIP boosters for double <laughs> masters. But in fact, if you run humans, you might well want four meddling mages, at least the non-foil ones. And the fact that you can, you can put four of the box topper noble hierarch in this deck as well. I mean, that's, that's eight box toppers in the deck. Not bad, not bad. Suggest to me that they those are probably both going to gain from their current position. If, and when tournaments come back to the forefront. Um, next up, we have a um, a pretty sh- straightforward Eldrazi Tron list. Yeah. It didn't have anything too new. Maze Mind Tomes, I guess, out of uh, M21 being the key add in the last couple months. Yeah, although there is the um, Torpor Orb and Sundering Titans in the sideboard for your uh, Karn the Great Creator to fetch up for you. I mean, you can you can do some work with this sideboard. Uh, I think the first one they tend to get, though, is the Liquid Metal Coating just to start killing lands. <laughs> yeah. Always tempting, especially if you're an evil person. Seventh place, we have a more of a blue Tron list. This is where they run Condescends and Cyclonic Rifts. Cyclonic Rift and Modern. Take a moment. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether that's great or horrible. Get back to me in a little while, because like, there are some decks that are just going to start crying real hard. Two Dismember, four Remand, four Thirst for Knowledge, three Walking Ballista, four Thought Not Seer, four Karn the Great Creator, the usual sideboard of targets, including the aforementioned Liquid Metal Coating, uh, an Aboro Palace in the Clouds and a Teleria West in the land mix, uh, Gemstone Caverns, Academy Ruins, uh, Foil Box Topper I picked a couple weeks back. I think it's going to get some get there. Not even one Mind Slaver for the lock? Yeah, that bums no, me out. No Mind Slavers there. Eighth place is a very straightforward, classic uh, red-white burn deck. Uh, I wonder what the debates are like on the forums for the like classic burn versus prowess burn right now. Like how they're bantering about which of these decks is actually better in the current meta. I don't know, but uh, this person came loaded for bear with three skull crack. I mean, I'm not. I think that's a response to all the uros we're seeing. Like, oh, nice uro, but you're not gaining three. In fact, you're taking three. Sure. It's just so so reactive, though. I'm not. I'm not sold on that, but I don't play enough modern to know for sure. Hmm. All right, so that wraps up our metagame week in review. We're going to move right on over to the top paper movers of the week. Got to let it aside. We're, we're back, right back where we started in 2017. We've been tracking these <laughs> reserve list targetings all year, but they have intensified significantly in the last month. And yeah, I mean, there's... There's a lot going on. COVID's on, buy lists are challenged, Bitcoin's up as a result of people, uh, inflationary pressure in the US. And when crypto charges in 2017, that meant that uh, people holding Bitcoin were looking to flee to um, collectibles to some extent. And that could there could be some of that going on as well. For whatever reason, reserve list cards are under serious pressure right now. And pretty much everything else on here is on here because it's supply challenged in some way as well. So we have Emil the Blast at a jump start, um, a hot card for commander use. And of course, jump start uh, next wave of supply has been bumped back and back 
and back. I think it's sometime in September, early October at this point. So Emile de Blest, uh, 35 to 48 on the back of those jumpstart supply issues. Wilderness Reclamation foils, as we mentioned earlier, um, seeing pressure from modern play. Keep in mind, this is an uncommon. So if you can get, this says it went 15 to 23. If you can get anything in, in the 20 to 30 range for an uncommon that you got in on under eight bucks, you're in real good shape. Yeah, because there were no collector boosters to goose the number of um, uncommon foils out there. Right. Stranglehold was only ever printed in the first Commander set, which is 2013, and then again in the Commander Anthology. So not a single printing card, but maybe printing in a half, roughly, uh, or printing in a quarter. Went from 18 to 28. If you want to play this card in Commander, you just you got to go buy one. So it could show up in Commander Legends. It could show up in the list. It could show up almost anywhere at some point, but... There's also no reason to believe that it, it necessarily will because it's already up to like 30 bucks. This is one of those cards where it's definitely high because of supply challenges as opposed to how much demand it sees. Um, so it's the kind of thing you want to be out of before the reprint is announced for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a sweet card. It does awesome things. It stops the most annoying stuff that people can do in Commander. The problem is like it's just four mana enchantment that does nothing and it's only in about... Uh, 5,500 EDH decks. So, you know, you can stop them from searching their library and stop them from uh, taking extra turns, and that's it. It's no fun to just prevent that kind of thing. You never even know if it works. Mana Vault foils out of UMA. The last time we saw Mana Vault, a couple years back now. 90 to 150, 67% gains. This is, you know could signal that somebody thinks they know or knows that we're not getting Mana Vault anytime this fall. If we are getting Mana Vault anytime this fall, I want to be selling the foil box stoppers. Like if, if Mana Vault is an anchor card in Commander Legends, then probably want to Man. be out of that ahead of time. So there's a masterpiece invention that is 200 or so with very few listings left. Suspect those will end up 300 in the not too distant future. Uh, and the Ultimate Masters box toppers here says got up to 150. There are still $140 copies on TCG Player, but only a handful of them. And then they jump pretty quickly up to 200. So I think picking up a, a foil Mana Vault box topper is real solid, especially if they're cheaper in Europe, if we don't see another reprint at a premium level. If it was to be printed in Commander Legends, but it just had like regular and foil edition, I wouldn't be that concerned. But I find it very hard to believe, given that they announced Commander Legends a full year in advance, that we're not getting either VIPs, which I think is most likely, or at minimum collector boosters for Commander Legends. There's got to be a premium version of that product that hasn't been announced yet. Absolutely. There's going to be some premium version. We've, we've proven that there's a market for it. So I, it seems unlikely that they're not going to uh, use whatever metaphor you want. You know, They're going to ride this horse into the ground until we we cry out no more no more our wallets can take no more so i think i must sell once the next you know 10 or 15 copies in north america drain out of the foil mana vaults i think i'm a seller because i want to get out ahead of any premium version that could compete the only counterpoint i would make to that is that it doesn't seem like the foil box toppers have really put much drag on the at least posted prices and copies in market 
for alternate versions. So for instance, there's not some flood of masterpiece mana crypts uh, hitting TCG player as people switch over to the box topper. In some cases, I think, and that one's a good example, I think the invention version is just better, like overall is a sweeter looking card, um, despite the Tiden art. And the other part of it is they're just, by the point where those things have been out for three, four, five, six years, there just aren't that many copies left in the market that haven't already been absorbed by the player base. And so if there's 10 listings of, say, foil invention uh, Mana Crypt when the foil box toppers drop and 10 to 15,000 or something of those hit the global market, they just those two price points just don't interact much. They don't have any very much reason to. Um, you know, you saw a lot more impact on the price of regular Mana Crypt, for instance, which is, you know, down significantly from before it was announced in Mystery Boosters. I think that Mana Crypt we can currently get at, let's see, Mystery Booster versions are still sitting at 100, Eternal Masters at 110, Double Masters is at 99. So actually, it's it's holding up pretty well. I, I think these got as low, I think we saw Mana Crypts as low as 70 or 80. During the- I remember seeing a couple at 70, yeah. yeah. But I I would be surprised if there were a lot of people who were switching from one premium version to another, or a lot of them. Like, you can have an art preference, but you've already got a sweet, expensive version of something. It's just more likely that somebody said, I've got this sweet Mana Crypt, but there's also this one that I can also put in another deck. Yeah. You know, somebody who picked up a premium Mana Crypt once is likely to do it again just with a different sweet version that's the thing if you have like not one commander deck that you love and play a lot but four or five six of them then over time you upgrade them in succession or you have a new one that you're building and you want a sweet card to put in there that you think is going to be a centerpiece and you know uh masterpiece mana crypt is currently at 450 plus on tcg player so you know, the foil double masters copies being available currently at 200 or so. And I think we, what did we get them in, in the group by this week? Or is it like 140 or something crazy? Uh, are we allowed to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I picked up one for 130, a foil box topper. Let me just say I'm checking my order. Yeah. It was, it was like 140, like 130, 138 or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, just picking up one of those in our group by this week would have paid for the majority of your year's subscription to ProTrader. So, you know, do what you will with that information. Um, yeah, anyway, foil box toppers don't seem to compete much with older sweet versions is, is the bottom line. But that's an article I should write soon. Thank you for that. So we've got Field of the Dead foils out of uh, Magic 2020 going from 22 to 38. Is Field of the Dead banned in Pioneer or not? It is banned in Pioneer, yeah. I thought it was on like a watch list for Historic as well. But yes, it's banned in Standard and in Pioneer. So in Modern, it's been showing up in those Teamer Wilderness Reclamation Uro lists. Uh, yeah, not even, uh, not necessarily even with Scapeshift either. It's just repeatable value card. Yeah, so like for instance, the Canister running four-color Uro has two Field of the Dead in his 27 lands and there's a, a bunch of other brews that are running two or three four copies so not super surprised to see these foils drying up i also don't think it's the kind of card that wizards is going to be in any rush to reprint so these foils could get get pretty far up the ladder they could be 
60 70 80 dollars before they ever see a reprint i mean uh you noted on here that it's in uh also fourteen thousand commander decks online yeah um it's really easy to set this off in commander and uh it's just nice to have you know free creature turn after turn and it costs you a colorless land that comes into play tapped right not a huge drawback in commander so this next one is a reserveless card but also partially your fault right uh, well, you know, it was five weeks ago. I picked uh, Eladomri, Lord of Leaves, out of Tempest. Uh, it's gone from about twenty to thirty-five uh, in week in cast number two two eight. I said eighteen to forty. So, uh, well done. You know, ring the bell. And uh, if you've got them, I think I would be a seller. You know, thirty-five is definitely more than you got in for. And uh, you know, sell two of them and keep the other two in case they hit seventy. But don't be afraid to take your profits and move on. It's tough. Reserveless stuff that spikes because it's reserveless and no one is playing, you may as well flip into the hype if you can. Especially if you go too deep. Like if you pick up 100 copies of Pendril Mists or something, please, <laughs> please do sell them if you think you have an exit. Because <laughs> it could be a while before the buy lists agree with you. Um, oh, this one, this one has a point. Like you've got uh, every time a new sweet elf commander comes along, everybody's like, "I can give all my elves forest walk and shroud." Shroud is middling. Sometimes you want to untap your elves, but um, being able to just you know two mana and not worry about point removal feels pretty good. Yeah. Next on the list, Sliver Legion foils at a future site. That's a real old foil. Uh, 175 to 300 this is i don't know how real the 300 is or if it's just more of a that's the only listing left on tcg player at this point but the the reality is that this card is not on the reserve list right no sliver legion's not reserve list so it could catch a reprint and i have noticed lately that i've been targeted on some sliver cards that i've got posted online for sale they moved really well leading up to modern horizons of course because there was the rumors that there were slivers involved and there were um, turned out they weren't all that exciting other than what's the five color sliver we got uh hive lord no, no. um the one that get the first sliver thank the first you first sliver yeah so the first sliver definitely did pretty well in, in terms of sales um the others not so much and i sold a whole bunch of sliver hives leading into that hype cycle then it went dormant for a while, and just recently I've noticed a lot more Sliver Hive purchases. I think that Mero mentioned Slivers uh, as showing up in the list, which if anything to me signals that you want to be selling Slivers, not buying them. Um, and I don't think that necessarily means that we're getting Slivers invading Zendikar or anything. But uh, I don't care. <laughs> Sl- slivers are going <laughs> are to be a repetitive hype cycle, and... Whether you buy them for the wrong reason or not, the older foils are going to make money just because. Uh, Sliver Queen is going to make money just because. I've sold Sliver Queen through a couple of different cycles now that were purchased under 100 and sold near 200, and then it goes dormant for a while, and then the next Sliver Hype cycle kicks off and you do it all over again. So I don't really care why Slivers are popular right now. I just know that they're going to make me some money when the reason manifests. Yeah, I I would probably be selling uh, my foils of Sliver Legion, just because um, there there's only the other the only other printing was the Judge promo. It wasn't even in the um, Sliver uh, all foil deck, but um, you know if you could get three hundred for this silly foil, then you should go for it. Worth pointing out that the Sliver Legion Judge foil, which is not that old, only has three listings currently on TCG Player: two at one nineteen, one at one twenty, and one at one fifty three. 
So if those are drying up, feel free to to sell your your judge promo version as well. I'm pretty sure I have some from Europe. I got real cheap. Yeah, that's the joy of uh, finding out there's only other one uh, one printing. Uh, let's see. Next on the list is Sunken Ruins, the expedition version, way back from uh, Battle for Zendikar, is uh, gone from about sixty five to one fifteen. And, you know, it was six years ago that this came out, and blue-black is one of the more popular commander combinations, and, you know, doesn't take much to drain out expeditions at this point either. Yeah, that's like six years ago? Uh, that sounds right. 2014 Battle for Zendikar? Yeah. It's either five or six. The Sunken Ruins is one of the worst expeditions, but it has some of the best art of the expeditions. And uh, shows up a, in a reasonable number of decks uh, for EDH. And just anybody who's collecting the expeditions needs them to finish sets. So, I mean, eventually collectors will take bite-sized chunks out of this kind of inventory until there's nothing left. It's entirely possible that, you know, we're going to see... The, the rumor for the collector boosters for Zendikar Rising is that there will be a land slot within which the fetches will be printed. Which is... A possibility we've talked about before that they could show up in the CVs. Um, they could also sh- show up in some form in the set boosters, ostensibly, maybe in the list. Um, or they could still, there is an outside chance they reserved them for Commander Legends. We don't know for sure yet. But even if we get alternate printings of you know the cards that are expeditions, it may not matter. Because again, it's got that, that same... You know, multiple premium versions of popular cards don't necessarily compete directly with one another, or at least not for very long, especially if the price points are disparate. So, you know, if you can get a, if you got in on Sunken Ruins, and I think copies were available under $50 pretty widely for a long time. Um, I think I, I feel like I bought copies near 30 at some point of some really cheap expeditions. If you can yeah. get out anywhere north of 80 on that kind of, you know, in from a few years ago, you're in real solid shape. I'd agree with that. That's a that's a big enough jump that you would be willing to uh, consider downgrading from the expeditions, unless you you know enjoy your expedition land if you want to. You know this is the sweetest version that you can get. All right, so let let me run through a bunch of. There was forty, fifty, sixty reserve list cards that were under pressure this week. I'm not going to cover all of them, but I'll mention a few notables. Memory jar out of Urza's Legacy, twenty three to forty two, eighty percent plus gains. Um, banned practically in every format. Memory Jar FTV version 28 to 60. This is one of the rare cases where something was on the reserve list and then they were like, well, maybe we'll just put them in FTVs or something and make judge promos. And then they were like, nah, 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 forget it. We won't do that. So, you know, that's the only uh, two versions of that card that have ever existed. Undiscovered Paradise out of Visions 18 to 50, supposedly. I'm sure I have copies of that in my collection somewhere. Elephant Graveyard, Arabian Nights, 115 to 325. Basically useless card that is just <laughs> from Arabian Nights and is sort of cool if you like elephants, I guess. Golgothian Silex out of Antiquities, 15 to 80. This thing kills all Antiquities cards, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And then Apocalypse Chime does the same thing for Homelands cards and supposedly went from a dollar to $12. That's a bunch, whole bunch of nonsense. Like, nobody's going to give you any money for an Apocalypse Chime. But... James, it, I will PayPal you $5 right now if you can name three Homelands cards. Uh, Baron Sengir. Uh-huh, one. Irini Sengir. Oh, damn it, I'm going to lose five and, bucks. 
Uh, time's up. Okay. No, no, no. This is taking you way too long. You're looking it up. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Dwarven Ruin. Dwarven Ruins. I'm pretty sure that's Fallen Empires, buddy. Is it? Is Dwarven Ruin different from Dwarven Ruins? I hope. I don't know. Let's. You know what? I'm going to look. Castle Sengir. Uh, you called Dwarven Ruin already, buddy. Dwarf Token? What are you doing? Silly fucking silly thing. Yeah. Castle Sengir is true. That God, that's such a bad Triland. Uh, yeah. Autumn Willow. I remember playing Autumn Willow back in the day. Autumn and... I had a whole deck based around Autumn Willow. Yeah. So when you need to get rid of these cards, you go to the the, the Apocalypse Chime. No, um, the Golgothian. What, what was it called again? Yeah, the Apocalypse Chime. Uh, Dwarven Ruin. Dwarven Ruins is indie. I'm pretty sure Fallen Empire's card. Oh, it got reprinted. Look at that. Uh, yeah, it's 6th edition reprint. And Let's put it this way. Apocalypse Chime on Card Kingdom's buy list is $0.59 cents credit. <laughs> $0.45 cents cash. <laughs> so we got a ways to go before you're like... You know, your big idea to sell Apocalypse Chimes works out. But I would not actually, whenever these hype spikes go on and people are like, oh my gosh, reserve list. And, you know, there's always some greater fools that jump into the mix and buy other people's $12 Apocalypse Chimes being like, they can never play Homelands cards again. It's like, true, but no one is. So <laughs> mm-hmm. now, if that, if that, now, if that card said green... It, destroy all green blue permanents and exile them from the game that would be a whole different story that would be very yeah. useful these days it would but you got to go back to stuff like um the real color haters are you know in revised and earlier you get your uh the karmas and the um the boils flash fires and whatnot old school talk. magnetic mountain old school talk let's go to our top mo- uh, anything you want to add about any of these paper cards Reserve list madness is silliness. If you're going to get involved, focus on the cards people actually play. Preach. Uh, online, um, five. we had five cards that were the uh, big movers as a result of the um, sacrifice deck. Bolus of Citadel being the big winner going from 0.1 tickets to 0.77 for you know a 700% gain. And you can really maximize that stuff online. Um Eliminate was in oh, there. Yeah, that's, Woe that's crazy returns online if you got in for 20, 30, 40 copies. Yeah. Uh, Priest of Forgotten Gods went from a buck to four. Uh, Midnight Reaper went from 10 cents to 33. You know, you, you can, on a 250% gain, you can really realize some amazing stuff. So especially because the way that you would do this on Magic Online for finance purposes is you would fill up a cart with four copies per interaction with a bot of all of these cards from this deck all the ones that have a chance to go off and then ride the deck up and get out again like usually within 24 hours so 600 percent gains are insane they're really insane if you can do them in a day and even if you only get an opportunity like that once or twice a month (laughs) you can still turn 100 tickets into like 6,000 tickets in a year if you really know what you're doing and you're keeping on top of things um, if, you, if you want, if you want to be on top of things, definitely want to get inside Pro Trader because our Pro Trader uh, Magic Online community is very on top of things. Yeah, you got to have the notifications on for that because they are like, it's like now, 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 go, they're, go, they're, go. They're moving fast and furious. I, I'm totally out of touch at this point. It's been weeks since I've even checked in uh, in that channel just because I've been so busy with group buys and stuff. But uh, you know, 
settle in there and the and and the folks <laughs> in that channel will get you situated you'll get taken care of uh the only other notable uh mover was uh domri the anarchobolus he's uh, about doubled up uh from 15 cents to 33 uh haven't seen a deck with him but uh i would imagine you know maybe people just want to protect their creatures from being countered this turn i'm not 100 percent sure on that one i couldn't find anything yeah i don't have good research on that one either all right, let's move on to our paper cards to watch. I've got some juicy, tasty foil box toppers to discuss. Kick things off here with how about Mox Opal foil box toppers out of Double Masters, currently available on TCG Player around 75 bucks, and they're not much cheaper in Europe, so there's no obvious arbitrage here. Uh, you get them maybe five bucks cheaper, but that's about it. I would think that these could easily go 75 to 130 on the basis that other versions of Mox Opal are already pretty pricey. If you look at the Masterpiece version of the card, you're talking about, what did we say? It was close to 200 or something? Uh, for Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it was holding... For the Masterpiece? Yeah. Hold, holding steady close to 200. And this thing is in, you know, regardless of what's going on with this card in competitive play, which is where I think a lot of competitive players would assume you need the support, the reality is it's in 14,000 EDH decks. This thing makes any color a mana if you have three artifacts to play. Not hard to have three artifacts to play in, in Commander. <laughs> this is a format with Soul Rings and Mana Crypts and Mana Vaults. And, and Artifact Lands. And Artifact Lands and Arcade... Uh, Ar artifact Lands legal in, in EDH, really? Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> That's the crazy thing about Commander. <laughs> but but Telerian Academy is not, right? Telerian Academy is super banned, yeah, yes. Yeah, because with the Artifact Lands, it's insane. Extra, mega, Ex ultra banned. Yeah, super crazy bad. So anyway, bottom line is Mox Opal Foil Box Toppers are one of the lowest inventory levels on TCG. So 18 results. Looks like the ramp is pretty steep. Now, counterpoint is that there are definitely more foil box toppers coming to the market. There are orders that haven't been filled yet. Uh, there are some major vendors that oversold that are going to need to honor some orders. There's definitely lots of inventory coming over from Europe. Like MTG Price Pro Traders have 500 uh, packs of uh, VIP coming our way, plus another maybe 100 in motion of Japanese stuff from various people that have been picking those off here and there. And vendors will get restock from some of the distributors other vendors have told me they are out or can't get any more from the distributors i suspect that by and large has to do with how big of a vendor you are um, and the kind of relationship and sales pattern you have with your distributor so there are more vips to come peak supply i suspect i suspect is behind us but i think there will be some retracing of cards that uh have weaker demand than others if another wave hits. It's also not impossible for Wizards just to up and decide that heading into Christmas, they're just going to print some more VIPs. If they sell out completely and they th think they can get away with reprinting like a 30% of the initial print run, and, you know, $100 sexy prize packs for Magic is a pretty good Christmas present. It makes a lot of sense to me that we could see more of these down the road. The question then becomes just how much, like how much greed how many packs because if it's anything under 40 percent of the first print run i'm completely unconcerned like even if that even if that sets the resets the clock on some cards and knocks a 110 dollar card down to 90 or something for a while it's just going to creep back up 
I mean, the the main concern I would have would be that they can't print enough things on schedule as it is. I don't know how much rearranging they can do and how difficult it is logistically to like switch what they were planning to print. But like Jumpstart were way behind. Uh, there are people who haven't gotten their secret layers like two, three, four months later. Like they're really behind on some of the stuff that they're printing. And so uh, while I think it's possible they could, you know, whip out some more in a special holiday event, they put a different bow on a VIP box. I don't know what, what it would entail, but I, I don't know how much they could really come up with if they pushed it right now because they're, they're pretty jammed in that regard. Yeah. All right. What's your first pick? My first pick this week, I'm going to uh, rearrange this on the sheet a little bit. Um, I'm going to go with you on a uh, foil box topper. Um, I like the Toxic Deluges. Uh, you can get them for around 35 on TCG Player. And uh, right now, Card Kingdom is buying them at $30 cash. So there's almost no risk on picking them mm. up right now. Oh, well, all right. You're already giving me the uh, Marge Simpson hum. So, no, no, uh, no, no. That was, that was a hum of support, sir. Oh, was it? Okay, good. Because, uh, you know, it's in 29,000 Commander decks. Uh, it's super sweet. It's a board wipe. It sees occasional play in Legacy because you really got to kill stupid uh, True Name Nemesis. But, you know, when you need to get rid of everything, you need to get rid of everything. And it's only three mana. So I think you originally put in here 35 to 70. I knocked this back to 35 to 60. I think it's a little bit more realistic given that it's a rare uh foil box topper and given how many results are currently on tcg i think it's very easy for this to get 35 to 50 and then the last ten dollars might just take a little time all right um but yeah this this one's rock solid i, I don't love the art on this to be honest uh, i'm a big fan of early richard kane ferguson stuff but i don't really like how this one turned out um all right so I'll well, t- you can nitpick you know we can argue about art choices for uh, its own podcast. That'll be fine. So, my second pick is actually a double header pick since it's Double Masters. Um, dun, dun, although dun. only one of the versions is from Double Masters. Sword of Feast and Famine Foil Box Topper is the lowest listings of any of the Mythic Foil Toppers. It is currently at, let's see here, 18, nope, 14 listings left on TCG Player. And they are in the 105 to 120 range. I suspect that these are going to sync up pretty closely to the 200 plus dollar uh, masterpiece sort of feast and famines. There's no uh, alternate version pressure there, as we meant, described earlier, because there's one listing. There is literally one copy of the near mint invention version of Sword and Feast and Famine at 205. And once that's gone, there are zero. That means that the next person into the marketplace might decide to post it at 240, at 250, at 275, and they might get their price and set a new benchmark. The judge foils is the other half of this. There are four listings left on TCG Player, a handful just under 100, between 90 and 100, and then one posted at 150. This is an old border card. I have these in, yeah. in, uh, in stock. They are gorgeous. And I think I had them, I think I got them via a CK buy list exit in January at about 90 apiece. And I've got them posted online for 120. I'm going to take that listing down after this podcast 
and hold <laughs> because I could see the old border swords just getting up to 200 in the not too distant future on the basis of ridiculous utter scarcity and the fact that we just got a new version of premium version of this card which I'm calling side by side take your pick do you want the old border great you can get them under 100 bucks but not for very much longer you want the brand new fancy it's actually more expensive right now but I would argue the judge promo looks better so call the judge to go 95 to 140 the uh, box topper foils to go 110 to 160 within the year and I think you have a very good chance of being right. Keep in mind that there is 14,000 EDH decks running this, so very similar to Mox Opal. And there are only 10 listings on card market in Europe, which means this card has been under pressure. Somebody decided this was going to be a potential double up and grabbed a bunch. Yeah, you know, it You know, it untaps all the lands. So I, I would have thought Sword of Fire and Ice was the more popular one, but uh, it appears that I was wrong about that because I just thought... A card in a shock was better than the untap, but uh, you know that that's that's where we are, and uh, I think this is a pretty easy pick either way. I didn't know the judge foils had gotten to that point. I need to go pick up some of the other judge foils, a sword. Yeah, according to, according to EDH Rex, sort of fire and ice appears in half the decks that sort of feast and famine does. So that's that, really surprising that, to me. That right? explains a lot. Maybe I'm coming from a cube perspective where Fire Nice is by far a better pick in cube, usually. Hmm. I don't know. We'll talk about this in the Discord in the cube channel. Anyway, th- these swords are are a home run. And I don't think that if you op- if you crack a Sword of Feast and Famine foil box topper out of your VIP packs that you should feel in a rush to unload it at this price. I think it might be a very reasonable hold. And then you'll get more out of what you put into those VIP packs. Are you telling me to crack mine because I'm I'm holding. The, I'm holding. The cracking. Well, this is a, this is actually a worthy point because I'm not sure if we mentioned it last week or not. The Wizards is honoring the clusterfuck of misinformation, including uh, printing on the back of the VIP boosters that you could get two mythics uh, in the packs, which is sort of true in the sense that you can get a mythic box topper and a regular mythic but you can't get back-to-back mythic box toppers so to recognize that that may have been confusing or misleading to some people even though it didn't actually hurt anybody uh, for the math reasons we've already discussed in a previous cast the they are customer service if you send them upc codes that you clip out of your uh, vip booster boxes they're sending people a double masters booster pack for each of those so I sent them 17 of those last week, and I'm basically having 80% or 70 or 80% of a box of Double Masters sent to me for free. <laughs> Makes it hard to go wrong with cracking the VIPs when you're getting free booster packs. Damn your eyes. <laughs> I'm trying to keep them. And, and now there's a, um, you know, you have a backup plan for if you open poorly, because at least you can reduce your cost basis for a little bit. Um, well, even if you open well, that's you know still four double masters packs. Yep. And that's another uh, eight rares. Uh, you're guaranteed two foils per pack, right? I mean, you got to if you're opening a subcase, you got to look at the subcases being twenty five or thirty dollars cheaper minimum. If you open something sweet in those double masters packs, like a mana crypt or something, then you're going to be way out ahead. And uh, yeah, so foil- I hate you so much. I, I think you I think you can go either way with those. It's entirely possible that if if there if no more VIPs appear then holding could be very, very reasonable because you might be able to get out on them north of 150 
by Christmas. Like there'll be hot Christmas gifts and the market will drive up the price. But if more appears, then you're just holding longer and longer. And you, you could you could probably crack flip into the hype now and then buy back more cheaper later. So true enough. Um, anyway, your sword picks totally solid. I'm with you on all counts. Toxic deluge, totally solid. So uh, you want to tell me I'll about how scrying sheets ended up back on this list? So scrying sheets is the one that's one snow tap. Look at your top card. If it's snow, put it into your hand or reveal it and put it into your hand, I believe. And, um, I looked it up, and when Modern Horizons arrived, uh, it bounced up to $30, and it's come back down to around 15 So, uh, you know, we've got the rumors of Snow being the set after Zendikar 3, and uh, it's really, like, this was Cold Snap. This was a small, weird set when Magic was at kind of a low point, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, there's only eight near-mint foils on there if you want to go uh, super crazy on it. But I think going from 15 to 30 the next time that there's hype to sell into is going to go very well for us if you want to pick up your scrying sheets now. Thursday, October 24th of 2019. It looks like I buy-listed eight copies of scrying sheets to Abu Games for $228 US. Plus credit bonus. So that's an average uh, of like $29 cash per copy. And I think yeah. my entrance was close to 10 I also sold a foil Japanese scrying sheets uh, online for 110 July 9th, and yeah, picked the hype that was real. Picked that up near Modern Horizons, I think around 55, something like that. So yeah, if Kaldheim exists and it features snow permanence, which is not guaranteed, they could easily have a snowy world without snow permanence. I would guess they. You know, those two probably go hand in hand, but they don't have to go hand in hand. If if that's true, however, scrying sheets will take off again. <laughs> so if it's retreated a significant portion, this is a very solid entry point for sure. I think it's solid even if we don't get um, snow for a while. But uh, when snow hits, it, it's going to make you feel really, really, really good. All right. Fair enough. My final pick of the week is probably the best one, to be honest. Thoughtseize foil box toppers. I saw people like opening them and being like, oh man, yeah, I wouldn't sweat it if you opened the foil Thoughtseizes. They're currently available on TCG Player in the mid 30s. That's like the only place in the world where they're the mid 30s. <laughs> Over in <laughs> Europe on Card Market, which would normally be the place we would be looking to scoop hot uh, foil premium cards and, and reverse arb- and arbitrage them back to the US they're 60 euros plus plus shipping etc so you're talking about 70 to 75 us in europe right now and over in japan on Harayuya, their buy list is 6,000 yen for the english foils don't even get me started on the japanese foils but the english foils they're buy listing for 60 bucks us so you can reverse arbitrage 10 Foil Thoughtseize is at 36 and even after shipping and hassle, you could easily be clearing a $20 bill per copy on a cost basis that's under 40 So you're talking about 50% gains in a week or two on this one. And the retail price on Harayuya right now on the foil version is $130, more like $125, $125. And you can pick these up on TCG Player right now for $36. 
what causes a, a gap like that? Because, folks, I can't really express to you the emotion that James was putting into this when he was uh, talking to me while doing this research. Uh, you would have thought he'd found the lost city of El Dorado. He was so excited. It was like it's so like, like getting a Coke Slurpee on a hot day. That's how much I was salivating. <laughs> This, th- right. th- this is the part of MTG Finance I live for. Discovering a gap and then driving a Mack truck through it. The, yeah, th- this is what the vendors that are out there sell- freshly selling you MTG Finance info do a lot of. When you see really aggressive buy lists on a GP floor in the Midwest, and you're like, how are they paying $9 on a $10 card? That doesn't make any sense. Dude, they're sending them to Japan. They've been doing it for years. <laughs> that- there are competitive staples in Japan that just sell for more. This Thoughtseize has great art. It features a fairy. There are, There is probably a much greater likelihood, as we'll talk about in a little while, of tournaments kicking off successfully in other parts of the world other than the U.S. because other countries have handled COVID better and will be able to get back to normal sooner, at least until the borders with the U.S. open. So for whatever reason... There's a massive arbitrage gap on this card right now, and there's zero reason not to snap some off. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. If players don't buy them in time for their collections, those vendors are going to pick these copies off and send them overseas. And you're going to see, people are going to be like, how is Thoughtseize moving when no one's playing Paper Magic? That's not an EDH card. Just listen to our cast and you'll know. they're gonna they're gonna arbitrage those copies so you can't sit on this until they announce a gp in vegas for summer 2022 you you need to move now now um what are the um in five minutes or less can a regular person send to how are you how you oh man i'm messing up their name and i'm really sorry about that let me try one more time i'm i'm, Haru- I'm not convinced i say it right either i say how are you okay all right how are you uh buy list is it possible for a regular person to do that without having to bound ship it to someone else or something like that? There, uh, Tokyo MTG is run by uh, Heiko Schmidt, I believe his name is, who is a lovely uh, English-speaking gentleman that you can meet on Facebook, for instance, or reach out to their buy listing team, and they pay by uh, pay out to PayPal. So that's one option in situations where their buy list is as tasty as Harryuya's. If you, I suspect that even though Harryuya's buy list is technically domestic focused and pays out to a Japanese bank account, that if you contact them and, you know, maybe with a picture (laughs) of what you're trying to sell and your best attempt at some translated Japanese with the help of Google Translate or whatever, keep it simple and don't use too many technical terms, you'll probably get a, a response. Um, you know, their buying teams are, are going to be hungry for stuff. So if they think that, you know, if you can cough up 10 copies of the Thoughtseize, I'm sure they will work it out with you um, on how to ship it to them effectively. Now, there are some shipping issues in and out of Japan right now. So that's to be considered. But none of that's going to, th- this get arbitrage gap is worth the effort, is the bottom line. Okay. So there's your, uh, there's your target, everybody. I'll, I'll tell you this much. Oh. Even if you don't feel like getting involved with any of that, if you crack these in your VIPs, I would not be rushing, like, trying to undercut people on TCG Player and list a $32 copy. Like, <laughs> that's, just yeah. the, that's just the definition of working against yourself. Yep, uh, I'm with you on that. And the fact that uh, we have picked uh, 
four different uh, Double Masters foil box toppers tells me I'm going to keep mine sealed. So, uh, my last pick this week is a reserve list card that you may have played against at some point and said, wow, that card is ridiculous. Uh, Dream Halls, the five mana enchantment out of Stronghold. Um, it's just sweet. There's almost no copies available. Uh, I'm looking at TCG right now, and there are... Uh, there's one person who has 17 copies at 35. That's the wall you got to get through. But mostly, you know, you're going to pick them up in the $28 range. And uh, they'll either spike because of uh, reserve list hype or um, somebody will feature it in a combo. Uh, the favorite one is to pitch any card with uh, Conflux, the tutor. And then you go get five cards and then you're off to the races you know, whatever combo it is you want to do. It does enable everybody to do this uh, pitch effect, so you got to watch out for when you do this, but uh, it's a sweet card, and, um, you know, it's hard to argue with anything on the reserve list that's even slightly playable at this point. Yeah, I think this is, like, mid-tier reserve list, I suppose. Uh, mid-tier right. to lower mid-tier, um, but it's the kind of card that does have uses, and has shown spikes in the past like if you go look up the graph on mtg price or anywhere else you're just going to see it go up and down a few times and no reason it can't re show a repeat performance on that that's for sure yep all right um oh and our pick a, do you want to explain our reader pick or shall i yeah go for it all right our reader uh pick this week from our uh mtg price discord is uh the user sods who uh, very patiently sent in land tax to us twice in a row, and uh, the regular copies out of Double Masters are available overseas at around $20 US, and uh, it's like impossible to argue with at that price if you can get your hands on it. Uh, slam dunk of a pick. Um, he picked it to go 20 to 35 which is approaching what it is now, right? Um, it's pretty you can get them in europe and know with confidence that the retail price in the u.s is over already well ahead of what you're paying uh let's see the double masters version is the lowest price on tcg right now is 33 dollars. so hit that arbitrage button hard everybody get yourself some cheap copies of land tax and, uh, you know, if you can't do that, then just hang out for our next group buy, and I'm sure we'll have some delightfully cheap copies of that available for you then, too. I mean, cop copies will rise in Europe if people start buying them up, and then, you know, our future copies may or may not be cheaper, depending on what the market looks like. But the... Don't rain on my parade like that. Card Kingdom is currently offering 22 cash, 30 credit for Battle Bond versions, which is the same art. Um, they aren't actually taking any Double Masters copies right now, and that's actually entirely, could entirely be possible. Uh, it could be possible that that is linked to the number of copies we got under $14 <laughs> in <laughs> Europe over the last month or so. Um, hitting, I know people were getting their packages over the last week and probably immediately went to buy list some of the stuff that was an easy flip. So... Pro traders getting their value. There's also plenty of vendors that are importing uh, Double Masters cards from Europe and doing the same thing. So, uh, I would imagine that Karkin will be taking this card again, but they may just be uh, not hungry for a little while. Not hungry. They're fed. They're happy. They're yeah. taking a nap, sleeping it off. Yeah. 
All right, so we want to talk about, uh, in segment four this week, talk about a couple of things that are almost certainly going to affect uh, the magic economy over the next six to 12 months or so and, and beyond. Um, the first is just to take a, a look at what will happen if COVID impacts portions of the planet differently. And I, we referenced it earlier, to be specific, if the U.S. gets back to playing competitive magic later than, say, Europe and Japan. Uh, so, for example, that would mean, um, like, I, I would take bets that the U.S. is not going to have a Grand Prix until next summer. Like I would, I would take all your bets if you think that the U.S. is that there's going to be a Grand Prix Vegas anytime before next summer, and even that might be optimistic. We're talking about like if they announce in a month that if Germany's to take an example of Germany or uh, whichever country you want in Europe or in Asia, a country that has a certain threshold of COVID cases, like they will get this Grand Prix will happen, this Magic Fest will happen if the rate stays low and uh what that would mean for us just so just so we're all clear about what what we're discussing here the problem with magic fest is that they are super spreader events yes. you have two or three thousand people in a room they're all fondling the same objects and then rubbing their nose well at, did it well, have to be fondling well, you had to use fondling as the word go on go on while they are absent-mindedly you know interacting with their environment while they're deep in the tank that is a pretty terrible place to unleash COVID because we know that you don't need to actually cough or sneeze on somebody to spread this disease. You just have to talk or sing and, and just those droplets are highly infectious and you're putting people face to face, two feet away from each other down a long table and then repeating that scenario throughout the room. So I think that if you're lucky, you have uh, playmat space in be- in between you and the other people. Like, yeah, I, I know I've been to my fair uh, share of events where um, where we are definitely elbow buddies, you know. Right. So I think that magic fests are going to be a tough sell, even in countries that are doing well. I think that major events are the last phase of back returning to normalcy. And this goes for concerts and sporting events and whatever, right? The entire sporting industry has had to pivot into some very unique and awkward things. Like you've got a whole bunch of basketball teams sequestered in Toronto right now um, because they're basically trying to, you know, pod each sport into you know, a relatively safe position and then figure out how to operate their business without massive crowds. But Yeah, because all their profit margin is based on the crowds. Right. But LGS play could return overseas significant like Friday Night Magic could return in Japan and Europe ahead of North America. Now what percentage of total demand does that represent? Well Japan is probably the second uh biggest country for magic in the world, um, based on the the multiplier of population plus interest and europe as a whole doesn't have nearly as strong of an lgs network as say the united states does but there are still hundreds and hundreds of stores so it's entirely possible that you could see strong demand for things like thought seas manifest in overseas ahead of the u.s and that could set off all sorts of arbit- reverse arbitrage opportunities where competitive staples are 
in you know things like a mox opal or a thought seize, um, you know stuff that is not. I mean, mox opal is a worse example than thought seize. Thought seize is not really played in commander. Mox opal is. So let's stick with the thought seize example. Thought seize is played in pioneer and modern. And if those things are getting played in Europe and Japan and they're not being played here, then you could see copies flowing overseas. And you could see buy lists getting uh, pretty aggressive overseas and encouraging vendors to buy even at retail pricing and ship them over. So that's going to be definitely something to keep on top of as as time goes on, as COVID, the COVID situation develops, as we see what happens with the U.S. election. Because I think that the Democrats winning in the U.S., <laughs> will signal a pivot to uh, a greater commitment to science and rationality in the next administration. Well, let's hope. I mean, it, the bar is pretty low on that, so. And that would help a lot. I mean, if you, that would instill some confidence in, in the economy as a whole and certainly in the magic economy in the, in the microcosm. Now, the other thing I, would, I want to draw attention to is a completely different thing, something that I've been tracking more broadly for better part of 10 years. Um, for those that don't know, back in 2012, I was the CEO of a funded startup called Shelf Life, which was a next generation social commerce platform for collectors. So think about something like a TCG player, but for every collectible ever made. And the, the elevator pitch there was that we were the overlapping Venn diagrams of nerds, jocks, and gamers. That the what had previously been fringe culture was now mainstream culture that of the top 10 movies of all time, almost all of them were uh, sourced from nerd and or gamer culture, and that there was going to be a huge degree of interconnected uh, collectability, especially with multi-generational brands that were, that crossed through culture from multiple angles. So for something like, say, Marvel, starts with comic books, heads into movies, then you're looking at all the toys and the accessories and the backpacks and whatever, and then you have the rise of video gaming and you have people playing you know, the latest Spider-Man hit on their Sony PS5s, which drives interaction with all the other aspects of the brand and explains why Disney was so eager to pick up Marvel and make it a centerpiece of their future forward, uh, uh, you know, showcase brand management. The multi-phase movies, the universe, yeah, the thirty, all that you stuff. know, the Marvel universe, etc. All of this comes from their understanding that owning brands like Star Wars and and Marvel, that transcended generations, was going to be a really, really smart play. And if you look at what they paid for Marvel versus what they made on the thirty or forty movies they've made so far you get a real good sense of how smart that was. And so one of the side um, effects of that is that major media outlets are every so often running news cycles that uh, point at collectibles investment and say, wow, look, did you see how much the foil Charizard uh, graded 10 went for? Did you see how much a Black Lotus went for? Did you see the first appearance of Spider-Man at auction last week sold for X hundred thousands of dollars? Um, this Mickey Mantle card, this Ken Griffey Jr. card, this original signed uh, set of Yeezys, whatever. Sneaker culture, video games, 
um, from the 80s that are, you know, like original Super Mario Brothers graded 10 is, you know, like a Black Lotus in that community. And so what's happening is that the investment community that already looks at things like wine and art and uh, fine cigars and so forth gets over time pulled into the collectible sphere because the numbers are getting bigger and the bylines are getting more interesting in the, in the media outlets. And we are seeing pressure pretty much across the entire collectible sphere that's only been increasing. Um, you know, alongside Magic, you have Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon going through major pumps on their, their best cards because those brands trailed Magic by about 10 years. And so you, their nostalgia cycle is set up for a different generation. This is younger millennials um, that are, you know, coming into peak earning years if they are in the high disposable income brackets and deciding that they want to own some early Pokemon that they're willing to drop 10 grand on. Yeah, I saw that um, Illustrator Pikachu went for like some ungodly amount of money not too long ago. So the um, rising tide of stuff is affecting all of us. And that's a good thing, I think, in the long term. It's, because it's the more collect. It's good for the brand. It is, but you're going to see a, some of this reserve list pressure could be outside money. Now, whether that's you know crypto money, Bitcoin money, because Bitcoin is surging, is at like about twelve thousand US right now. It was as low as twenty five hundred, I think, winter of twenty eighteen. So that's already a five bagger. And <laughs> if you think that that's a roller coaster, and you expect that any peak will be followed by a trough, even if you think the long term is up and to the right then you have every reason to get in and out of things deftly as you're moving along. Now, what I'm suggesting, though, is that beyond all of that and the you know general increasing pressure on the reserve list that comes from within our community, there is also some external pressure from people that don't play Magic, that don't know, only want to know enough about it to be able to make an investment. And that's where you're going to see, you know, a hedge fund guy throw a million dollars at the reserve list market just to see what can be done with that and see how fast they can get in and out of it. And they might hire a known magic trader to execute that plan for them as a test that goes on as a bullet point on a PowerPoint slide that suggests that they should be starting a fund to invest $150 million into the collectibles market or something. Now, like, you toss around the figure of a million dollars. Let's let's do a, a perspective check on that. Like at a hundred dollars a card, that is a uh, thousand, uh, ten thousand of a hundred dollar card. That's basically every, um, almost every copy of a um, sort of feast and famine uh, box topper foil. Well, like literally, you, you couldn't you couldn't even spend a million dollars on that card, even though it's at peak supply. There aren't enough copies available because the I was just talking about this with Kelly at Face to Face Games today about how so few people understand you know where all the copies are that you know I've said time and again it's not MTG Finance that's hoarding hoarding the cards it's the players ninety nine percent attrition rates like if you, if you think about there was probably something we did some rough math in the Discord today figured out that there's probably something like ten to twenty thousand of the foil box toppers 
um, seems like a reasonable number. I think I came up with 14,000 as my preferred number, but it could be anywhere in that range. And that is syncs up with what we know about, you know, how many masterpieces there were, how many uh, secret layers uh, there gener generally are, the mythic editions as well, we figured out were in that range. And that seems to be consistent. Wizards just seems to know that that's about the right amount of a premium card to print for it to do what it's supposed to do to get into the market, get cheap for a little while, and then drain out slowly and, and increase in value. And people go, wow, cool, that look, my collection's worth more. Um, and this card is rare. The, so if there's that many of the box toppers, but there's only 20 listings left of a foil box topper, then those can't all have been swallowed by vendors and speculators. The vast majority of them were just, <laughs> you know, people bought a couple of VIP packs because cool, let's try it. They opened well or they didn't open well, but whatever they opened, they mostly just keep and absorb into their collections. That list is really playable. There's not a lot of junk. There's not a lot of cards that if you have a pretty decent collection of commander decks or you know three commander decks and a modern deck and a pioneer deck, you can find homes for almost all of those cards. And so some of it recirculates for sure. That always happens. That's you know how buy lists stay fed. Is it you know some players and speculators do sell cards. But the vast majority of product purchased never makes it back into the market. Like 95 to 99% of it does not make it back into the market. So to throw a million dollars at Magic, you're going to pick up mostly graded items, I would imagine. And you're going to be, you, you really want to aim for the lowest overhead possible. So you want to minimize the total number of items you target. But you could take a million dollars and say buy the 10 best Lotuses in the world. Now, it might take two million to do that, but you could do it within yeah. that range. But um, like I, I'm thinking about this in terms of like magic paper, paper magic versus magic online. Magic online, fast, 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 done, 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 click, 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 instant like payback. Whereas paper magic, it is a giant pain in the ass if you buy, um, like for instance, um, whenever I want to pick up uh, copies of a card, I really, really hate um like how people will put one copy on tcg player because i don't want to mess around with getting exactly one in the mail and having like 10 different envelopes i will spend a couple of extra dollars if it means i've got one envelope with 10 of that copy um and i can't imagine somebody who says like i got a million dollars to spend let's uh jump into the paper market and let me get all these things in two weeks and then let me take uh, a, a lot longer to turn around and sell it. Yeah, yeah, but, like the, but that's not what they're looking at. They're going to be looking at, they're not even look necessarily looking to quick flip things. And if they were, they would hire an agent to do it for them. To, and, and they would be doing it to prove a point, to, to test whether the market could, could reabsorb them and whether they would follow them up the curve. If you, if you buy a million in Lotuses, you're hoping to get out at 1.5 to 2 million in some reasonable amount of time. You're, you might be willing to hold for two years. Keep in mind that the more money you have, the lower your expectations on the return. Because it's very, very hard to invest hundreds of millions or billions of dollars at very high rates of return without taking on significant risk. And so, you know, one of the issues in the world is that a lot of the money that's tied up in, in legacy wealth is is not particularly daring and and does not do a lot to rocket the world forward but that's that's a whole other topic 
the, the bottom line is this, that external money could come into collectibles for a bunch of different reasons and from different angles. It can be, you know, like Gary Vaynerchuk, pretty prominent guy in the startup community and, and uh, um, really a few different communities that are all kind of tangential to that, was targeting like people that were working on collectible startups as early as, I guess it was 2013, I think I first heard from him um, through, you know, contacts at the Mars Innovation Center here in Toronto, that he was looking for information about magic and Pokemon and comics and other stuff. I've seen him post many times in the intervening years, and I saw a couple of other prominent personalities with 100,000 plus followers on Twitter reaching out to the magic finance community over the last, you know, there was one today and I noticed another one about a month ago, asking for information. Like, hey, hit me up with all your resources. Show me the index sites. Show me returns. Show me some graphs up and to the right. These are not magic players. These are not people looking to set up magic businesses. This is look, people looking to, to gobble up a big portfolio of collectibles and then hire somebody to manage it and they're looking for it to generate a return. That doesn't mean that that guy's ever going to lay his hands on the copy. He doesn't care enough to do that. It just means that you could see a collectibles fund. I mean, Mythic Market is in some ways trying to do that, but target the retail investor, right? It's not that much of a hop, skip, and a jump from there to I'm going to organize a fund of $10 million or $50 million or $100 million to just buy collectibles and then start gobbling up some really some of the really high-end items. And that will trickle down into pressure on the reserve list. It will turn your $3,000 mocks into a $6,000, $9,000, $12,000 mocks over a certain number of years if it is on top of the already mounting pressure from Magic players. And it, it could easily get to the point where even if Wizards chose to break the reserve list, I mean, as vendors say all the time, that probably doesn't like represent any risk to the inventory the relevant inventory because a big chunk of the reserve list is cards they're never going to reprint just because they're bad cards they're terrible fucking cards. terrible fucking cards they, they don't want they're not going to even if they gave us reserve list masters it wouldn't be every card off the reserve list a lot of those cards are just bad for the game or they're just low powered or they're way too niche or whatever the, the cards that are most interesting in that scenario from a player perspective are things like dual lands. Because if they gave us reserve list masters and there was a box topper and you had a 1 in 20 shot at a borderless underground seed, then they can charge... They, Is it foil? I gotta know if it's foil first. I, I'm assuming so. It, but then, right. okay, but now, then we're talking. The, now we're talking. But now the box price is like four ninety nine or... Six ninety nine, or you can't price that shit high or, enough. Or eight ninety nine, and it'll still be just fine. And this is why the are there Japanese versions of this available? Like, oh, yeah, you know yeah, what? Yeah. You know what? Give me, give me some Russian. Give me some Russian. Yeah, I doubt they're going to give us Russian in that scenario because they know right. that they know that the the Russian boxes would be trafficked at a thousand bucks a piece. Not the vendors. The only vendors that are scared of a reserve list, uh, you know, being violated, are the ones that are holding have just acquired a bunch of $10 cards that if reprinted might drop down to five. And they were hoping they would get out of them, you know, tw at 20 or 30 or whatever. But this is very, that's a very narrow list. They're not really scared of things like Underground Sea, and they're certainly not scared of things like the Power Nine. First of all, 
if they ever dip their toes into the violating the reserve list waters, they probably won't go whole hog because there's legal risk, brand damage, reputation risk. There's a lot of risk involved in snapping the reserve list. So it's not going to be the kind of thing I think that they will just go, boom, reserve list masters. You can open a black Lotus for $199. That's not going to happen. But even if it did, say that happens five years out, a lot of those cards will be so expensive by that point that the, it, it's the same argument as the, you know, does a $100 foil box topper impact the price of a $300 foil invention? The answer is no, because it's really, they're apples and oranges once the price gap is that big and the inventory is that low. Similarly, by the point where, uh, you know, an unlimited Lotus is 25000 currently it's closer to, you know, what, whatever, six to 10 or whatever. Um, by the time a near mint unlimited Lotus is 25 grand, if you were to put a Lotus in a product, what's that Lotus going to be worth? 500, a thousand coming out of the gate. I mean, online, uh, they, they did this because there's no rule against the reserve list online and you can get into vintage for a surprisingly low amount of investment. I mean, so. I mean, that's a different animal because digital doesn't have any real limit on the number of copies. Like it's basically print to demand until they turn the faucet off. And I lost a lot of money on Black Lotuses on Magic Online. Actually, one of my one of my it's got to be in my top five worst moves. I think I picked up Lotuses online at three hundred, and ended up selling them at two twenty before they dropped well under a hundred. Right. Um, but but it's not think... it's it's really tough to compare. Even though they are have the same name, I don't really consider them the same class of object. The I, I think a better example is the, you know, multiple premium versions thing. The vendors are basically not scared of the reserve list being snapped and, and embrace it because they know they're going to make a ton on the new copies. If, if you're Dan Bach and you're holding, I don't know, whatever, he's got a million dollars in Black Lotuses or whatever, and they print a bunch of new Black Lotuses, the, the price of his old versions is not going to change one, one bit. Yeah. And, and, and the demand won't go down. The people that want the original best card in Magic will just buy the new one too. Like if they give yep. if, if they give us a borderless foil lotus, they'll buy that too and start grading it. But they won't buy it instead of the original. I mean, you would definitely have. To... I mean, the part of the part of the community that might do that is the old school community. They'd be overjoyed <laughs> to have a bunch of this stuff show up cheaper than it would otherwise be available and it ostensibly with better borders and new art cubers would be pretty happy too that they wouldn't yeah. have they'd be able to put like these expensive things in there and not you know have to make people sign a waiver before they start cubing yeah so i mean the bottom line is that there's definitely going to be money there is money flowing into collectibles from outside the, the hobbies and that will continue because the hobbies are becoming more and more central to global culture. The, the intersection of nerds, jocks, and gamers is very, very real. That's basically everything. That's all the things people spend their spare time on all over the world. So sure, the Amano caught us off guard because the Final Fantasy artist is a bigger deal in Japan than he is in, say, the US or Canada, but that still created arbitrage flow cross-border. And it's still ultimately about gaming culture. And so in the same way that manga has been exported from Japan 
and you know basketball was imported to China from the U.S. and so forth and so on. These multi generational brands owned by conglomerates are not going anywhere. Like Pokemon was around twenty years ago. It's around today. I guarantee you it will be around 20 years from now. And the only question is, in the world of virtual reality and quantum computing, how important will tangible collectibles still be? You know, is that that's the only fear I have about holding this stuff into the very long-term horizon, is that we could move to a very digital world and you know, a world where you're living in an extremely sparse space, a hollow deck, if you will, where, you know, you don't own a lot of physical objects. <laughs> but I think for the next five or 10 years, there's a lot of opportunity in collectibles. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not just magic. Magic's just one piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it's a bummer that we don't get to do the gathering part of it as much. Yeah. In the current environment, you know, that's always the best part. Uh, my girl likes to ask me who won after I play a game of uh, Commander via webcam. And I'm like, eh, I thought I was, but I didn't. That's okay, though. It was fun. I, I 0% care if I win a game of Magic, and especially don't care if I win a Commander game. Well, I, I will admit that in the, um, the MTG Prize tournament we did, I do like, uh, you know, look at my 7-0 record and be like, <laughs> flex! Flex. So there's only like 40 of us in this tournament in the in the Pro Trader uh, Core 21 sealed tournament that we're running this week. But do you think that the what do you think the odds would have been placed by the Pro Traders that the top three records so far would be me, you, and David Sharman, all MTG Price staff? Well, I think if they'd played me in uh, the earlier one that we did, uh, I think they would have been really low because I was terrible last time. I think I went two and three. I think I lost you in that tournament, though. And I seem to remember your deck being pretty nasty, actually. Well, clearly I was not nasty enough for the deck. So in, in, you know, it, it didn't... in, in, the, current, in the current tournament, I've been getting to go Bastry's Acolyte, Acolyte, Acolyte. <laughs> so. I've been doing a lot of um, the uh, Seasoned Hollow Blade into um, Makeshift Battalion into Bastry's Acolyte and just like curse slamming people. It's the best. Yeah, that three one that three one that discards cards to be indestructible is kind of nasty. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I, I got no way. Like, what should we look for? Um. In terms of you know, just to to wrap up the thought, like, if outside money starts moving heavy into magic, is it going to be the power nine? Is it going to be like somebody decides? Yeah. I, gonna, I'm I'm looking at the reserve list right now and trying to think like, what would somebody target if like somebody came to me and said, I want to spend a million dollars on magic. Like, what would I spend it on? It's, and I don't know where I would start, to be honest. They, they absolutely start with graded. Graded power. Okay. Because that, that's the graded simplest power. story to tell. This, is the mo this card game is about having powerful cards. And these are the nine best cards ever printed. Debatable, but that's the story you'll tell. And, library is number 10 and yes. here and this is the site that great there's like two, three two or three places that grade them here's the most popular one here's their grading record book because that's a big part of that whole scene right is the population mm -hmm. count like there are only whatever i don't know what the number is right now but there are only nine perfect 10 alpha lotuses or whatever and 
three or four of those are available in the market. Like our, we, we know who owns them and we could contact them and make an offer to get the, uh, to get, I... to get a graded high graded alpha Lotus out of someone's hands. You're going to have to make a fairly ridiculous offer. And this is the same kind of thing you see <laughs> in the art world, right? Like if you pick up uh, a paint, a famous painting at auction for a million dollars, you can't go to that guy and go, I'll give you a million, like 1.1. Nah, 10% doesn't tempt that guy to dump that art. He just put a lot of emotional time, like a lot of time and energy and money and emotional uh, investment into being the guy that owns that piece. So you're going to have to come in with 1.5, 2, 2.5, 3, 4, because that's the number that where that guy gets to, where him bragging about the flip becomes more sexy than owning the object that's exactly what i was going to say because like there are sweet cards in everybody's commander deck you have something that you're really proud of you have something that you're like i have this and um you have to have a number that is enough to make you say well me not having it is not as important as me having the story and the cash of this guy offered me twice what i just finished paying for it so it, it absolutely makes sense to me. And I, I wouldn't, players should not worry about outside money coming in and making their $5 standard rears worth more. That's not. Oh, no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything with standard. This is only on the collect, like the high end collector side of the market where it makes any sense. You're not going to see a hedge fund sweep in, deploy $100 billion and utterly disrupt the magic market forever that just makes no sense because you can't put more money into a market than it than it's worth and they the magic market per year is probably one to 1.5 billion dollars or something like primary wizards revenue seems to be somewhere between 350 and 500 million depending on how you read their most recent numbers and then you have the digital revenue which is split out arena and mtgo that might be another 50 to 100 million, I guess. And, and then you have the secondary market, which is quite a lot larger because it includes all of the cards that are in the market from the first days of the game that are not, were not sold by Wizard this year. So there's actually a, a fairly huge secondary market. And then you have accessories and travel and Magic Fest and the whole nine outside of COVID. So you're not going to throw a billion into a billion dollar market. That just makes no sense whatsoever. You, Nobody, no hedge fund in the, or or investor uh, wants to, you know, upset the apple cart. <laughs> they want to take a nice bite in a safe way in a in a place that makes sense. And I would argue that okay. magic would not even be a top priority in the grand scheme of things. Uh, graded comic books are probably I was going to say comics. Yeah, are, are probably close to the top of the heap. Uh, graded sports collectibles. You know, to get a, a Michael Jordan rookie signed by Michael Jordan or something, or like the first yeah, jersey he ever, the first jersey just want he something ever. with a lot more people involved. Yeah, and it's a lot easier to display that in your, you know, your fancy, you know, Sequoia office corner office than it is a Magic card, and and then video games because because video games are the biggest uh, entertainment segment on the planet now, and that's been true for a while, bigger than movies. And it's only going to get get bigger and bigger. And then movies and games are going to merge because virtual reality and quantum computing will put that put us there. And, you know, you're going to get to a point where Magic Arena is completely supplanted 
uh, and maybe the whole hobby disrupted by the virtual reality version thereof. And you're going to have whole generations like, you know, our kids are going to grow up thinking that loot box, digital loot boxes are collectibles. And so, you know, owning things in game to them will feel much the same way as owning a physical card. I mean, there's already like OK Boomer memes in the Magic community from the younger players basically suggesting that doing anything but play Arena is kind of pointless. Well, that's because they haven't seen the awesomeness that is my Turbo Talent deck. Once they see that, then they'll really, really know, you know what it's all about. Yeah, so the bottom line is we don't have any way of gathering good statistics on how much external money is flowing into collectibles as a whole or in Magic in specific. But it's something that is worth being aware of because I think it makes things like higher-end reserveless purchases even more safe. And I don't worry about, as we were saying, worrying about a reprint of most of the reserveless stuff is is mostly foolish. It would be, you know, your things like a, a Dream Halls is actually a good example. They were to break the reserve list and reprint Dream Halls. Dream Halls original copy is not going to be worth a super huge amount of money. Um, things like Survival of the Fittest, Yawgmoth's Will, eh. I mean, I'd probably be want to be out ahead of a reprint on those, I suppose. Um, because if they were available in quantity, they're still very, very good uh, commander cards. And the original printing probably, unless the new art sucked, the original printing probably wouldn't hold a huge premium. But something like a, a Gaia's Cradle that is supposedly spiking right now and is a, all of a sudden an $800 or uh, whatever card. You know, I was biasing into those at 300 in the winter off a of Ratchet. And am I in a rush to sell those for fear of the reserve list being snapped? No. I, I don't see Guy's Cradle being something Wizards has any intention of printing in the near future. So I might sell a couple on this ramp, hoping to get seven or eight hundred bucks just to make sure that, you know, I'm I've made my play and I'm full I'm fully in the clear on the other copies. And then I'd certainly be looking for news or hints or whatever. But I would guess that anything as crazy as a reserve list getting snapped will leak. <laughs> for sure, it will leak. And there will be whispers about it months in advance, in which case people will have plenty of time to discuss it and decide what the right move is. <laughs> All right. That's, um, I, yeah, I would agree with you on that. I don't think there's... Uh, much of a chance of the reserve list getting broken for something like this. I just want to make sure that people know that even if uh, the Bitcoin money and the uh, hedge fund money starts coming into magic, uh, you're probably not going to be affected. Uh, they're going to go after really specific and niche things and um, you know, keep listening to us and we will help you identify the awesome things on the cheap. And especially get in on our group bias because that's a really easy way to get the super awesome things on the super cheap yeah i mean from a, from a player perspective uh you know banding together our funds and spending tens of thousands of dollars to get things super cheap is just a no-brainer um from a collector perspective segment the reserve list in your mind the top third is a very safe hold almost no matter what happens the the middle third uh that could get reprinted and might act like something like an Imperial recruiter or a grim tutor in the face of a reprint. I wouldn't want to be too deep on in the very long term. 
And then the really useless cards, whatever. I mean, flip flip in and out of <laughs> them. Wall. Yeah, flip in and out of them very shallowly because you're, you're just going to have, if you try to go super deep on them, you're just going to have trouble getting buy lists to cooperate with you. Yep, that sounds about right to me. All right, so I guess that's the episode 233. Where can people find you online, Cliff? You can find me online at Twitter at Word of Commander as well as my weekly articles on Fridays on mtgprice.com. And you guys can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com, this weekly podcast, and my constant haunting and support of our uh, burgeoning Discord community. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save $5 off your order and support this podcast. James, we are done. Give me five seconds to say happy birthday, Mom. You've turned 70 today. I love you. And uh, that now, I know, right? It's super cute. I can't go see her. I'm so sad. Yeah, my dad's a doctor in the U.S., so that border's locked down to me, too. I feel you. That is rough. Thank you, Cliff, and we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm -hmm.